Hello, everybody. Um, tonight, we will be reading in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. This is such a great text. I just want to say as we begin tonight, if you're opened up to Revelation 19, you're in the right spot. If not, go ahead and look up Revelation 19. And as we begin, it is a summer Tuesday night and you are here. And I'm so glad to see all of you. I, I feel like the way we've turned our chairs in the last couple of weeks, it makes it feel a little bit more like like family, like we're home. And, uh, and I love that. And I just love that we are two weeks, including tonight, two weeks out from finishing the book of Revelation, the final word that was given to us to know and understand that we have a king, not just the suffering servant Jesus. And that's what we know him as on earth. That's what most people think of Jesus. They think of him as either a child, a baby, or Jesus on the cross. And we see the king. And tonight we're going to see that the king returns. I want you to know... <clears throat> This is not an idea that is just in the book of Revelation. Revelation pulls from more sources in the Bible than any other book. And Timothy receives instructions from Paul in Paul's very last letter, the Apostle Paul, as Timothy was serving a church in Ephesus. And the last few lines that Paul would ever write to Timothy, he tells him this. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the quick and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you, Timothy, to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. So think about this. Paul's final charge to Timothy was based on the fact that a king is coming back. With that, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that Jesus the king is returning. Lord, would you help us tonight to see this truth, see this reality, to be moved by it, Lord, and for us to adjust our lives so that we live with the hope that we see the king return in our lifetimes, Lord. And if not, that, Lord, we will find ourselves hearing you say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because we long for your returning and we lived faithfully as your bride. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. There is a gathering storm, but the storm is not as much focused 
on the righteous on the unrighteousness of the earth as it is the groom who longs to be united with his bride. So what we're going to see tonight is there is the judgment of Christ that's going to come upon the whole world. And yet that's not the reason that Jesus is going to return. So without further ado, let's jump in. Look at chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 6 and it says, "Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So to understand what's happening here, we're going to look at this idea of the marriage of the lamb. This is, this is big. Jesus longed for this marriage of the lamb to take place. And so what I think the best way to understand this is to understand the Hebrew custom for marriage. So Jews and everybody who got this letter, all seven of the churches going all the way back to chapters two and three. This was a letter that was circulated to seven churches. Every church who got this letter would have gotten to chapter 19 and seen every custom of a Jewish man and a Jewish woman who were going to get married. And so I want us to look. There's these three movements that every Jewish person would have understood. They would have understood this idea of betrothal. They would have understood the interval. And then they would have understood the wedding procession. So let's go to the betrothal. Let's go back and look. It says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come. So when we get to chapter 19, the marriage is about to happen. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the church united with Christ. And so the, in, the, the betrothal would have meant there were already marriage, the terms of marriage accepted in the presence of witnesses. So when we get engaged today, when we get engaged, you go off into like the woods somewhere typically because I've seen your pictures. You go off into the woods and when you go to the woods, you have like someone camouflage hiding. And some of you have been that person. And you're like, you put the truck bed down, you know, the tailgate down, and you sit there, and you're like, yeah, I just happen to be dressed in not Woods clothes, and I just happen to be playing your favorite song. And the girl's like, I know what's happening, but she acts like she doesn't. And so then, like, you know, he, he gets down on one knee, and he puts the ring on her finger. Somebody pops out with, like, a camera, and they're like, oh, there were, who knew that he would be here taking our pictures or she would be here? Like, she knew, guys. She knew. But you got to do it anyway. And so there's, there's no, like, but there's no lawyer that shows up. There's no, there's no document that has to be signed. It's just, you're just promised to each other. And you can break an engagement. In the Jewish way, 
the lawyers there. And you've signed, I commit to this person. The other person signs, I commit to this person. And then there's waiting. The day that you became a Christian, the day you repented of your sins, and the day the Holy Spirit came into your life and sealed you, if that day has happened, that was your betrothal. A binding agreement between you and Jesus took place. And the covenant was signed on the cross. And he signed for you and for him. In John 10, it says that no one can snatch us out of his hand. He holds us securely. It's going all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham, where God put Abraham into a deep sleep and walked the blood path both directions after Abraham cut all those animals in half. Jesus walked the blood path both directions and said, I'll hold up my end of the deal and your end of the deal. But then you got left here. Like, not one of you has ascended up into heaven. Not one of you has Jesus made a special pit stop and been like, I'd like to take you now, let's go. Like, that hasn't happened. And so you're clearly in the betrothal period, and so am I. We have signed our life away, and they have signed our, uh, we, he has signed his life away. Like, it is an intimate relationship, and that is the state of the church, and it's the state of the whole church, those who are alive in Christ and those who have died in Christ. This day has not happened yet. And so that's what's going on. And they're saying, hallelujah, the betrothal is over. And so once the betrothal is over, you have two more movements in the Hebrew wedding. The second movement would be the, the wedding procession. And there's several things that happens here. In verses 6 and 7, you'll see the bride adorns herself. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, I'll go partway through. It says, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. I'm in verse 7. And exalt over him. Give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright that is bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So in a Hebrew wedding, one of the things that happens in the wedding processional is the bride puts on the dress and that's what's happened here the bride has put on the dress now you know the story behind the white dress the white dress is the sign Heather did ruin that for me one day she said nobody wears a truly white dress and I said what she's like it's always like a shade of white I was like well, I want to think it's white and so like the reason the bride wears the white dress in our culture is to show that she has kept herself for her groom. And what we see here, the church that gets joined with Christ has kept itself for its groom. And we're going to see as we end tonight that not everyone who claims to be a part of the church of Christ has kept itself for its groom. But these folks, they have kept themselves for their groom. 
They have been longing to be with him, and he has been longing to be with them. The, 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 the next movement in the wedding procession is that the, the, the bride herself, I'm sorry, the groom himself, arrays himself in his best attire. Look over at verse 11 where Ashley just read, Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And then it goes through, and it gives this deep description and it says of the things of him that he has on this robe and the robe is white. And it says in there that, that the people with him have on their white garments. And so we see Jesus adorning himself for this big day. And so we have the betrothal. We have, I'm sorry, I did skip the interval, but the interval is actually kind of a little bit part of the betrothal. So we'll just pretend that doesn't, that I counted that. Uh, but the, that's where the groom pays a dowry for the bride, and I included that in the cross. Sorry. You guys were looking at me like, I can tell when I miss a note because you look at you like rule followers. You look and you're like, uh -uh. you need to finish all the notes. So I apologize. Just imagine if you were like moving slides for me in the back like Paul. He's like, he never finishes all his notes. So yeah. Okay. So after the bride adorns herself, the groom is arrayed in his best attire. And then the groom and the groom's friends go get the bride at her house. Now you've been wondering if you've been listening all these weeks, there's one word I haven't said the whole time. I haven't said the word rapture. And some of you are like, that's right. And you have messed up my Southern Baptist heritage. And some of you are like, that's right. And you have really helped my heritage because that, our, our pastor never said that either. This is where the idea of the rapture would come in. Now, some of you would be like, the rapture happened in chapter 7. I'm not, I'm not saying we're just going to leave that out right now. The point is, I don't know when all of this happens, but there's some verses that we can't skip. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, or 13 through 18, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Acts 1, 11, Zechariah chapter 14, they say things like this. Jesus himself says that there will come a day when two men are in the field and one is gone and the other is standing there. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says that those who have died in Christ will be raised and then those who are still alive in Christ will be caught up in the air to meet their Lord. There's, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we're told that it will all happen in the twinkling of an eye. Jesus said two women will be at the mill. They'll be grinding at the mill. They're, they're crushing the wheat at the mill and one is gone and the other is left. So in chapter 19, what we see is this great party colliding of those who have died in Christ, those who are still alive in Christ, and everybody all in Christ, the whole bride is coming together with the Lamb. We get our new resurrected bodies. Everyone in the church that's really in the church is made whole. The whole church. Can you imagine? You're sitting there and you're like, I think that's C.S. Lewis flying next to me. 
Like, that is rad. Or you're like, you know, you're like, Bonhoeffer? Is that you? And he's like, it is life together. Anyway, if you've read that, um, you know, there's, like, you can just imagine Amy Carmichael. There's, uh, I mean, person after person. You're like, Eve? She's like, I made it too. Like, you know, like I mean, like, Adam, is that you? You can tell them because they don't have belly buttons. Uh, and so, you never thought about that, have you? <laughs> True story. Okay. Um, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. But why? Why would they? Um, some of you are like, I don't, oh, I get it. Okay. <clears throat> it's the whole church, though. It's everyone. It's all of you and all through history. And we're joined together. And that's, that's the culmination. Like this book has been building and building and building for us to long for this day to happen. This is the day, this day, this is the day you have no more stress. This is the day no one, uh, you, you, there's no more bills to pay. There's no more, yes, I know, I hear that. There's no more classes to take. There's no more job decisions to, decisions to make. Like, this is the day. And isn't, the, isn't that how it goes on your wedding day? On your wedding day, you're like, I have a best man. I have a maid of honor or a matron of honor. I've got all these people taking care of me. I'm just focused on the big day. And we have this incredible feast that takes place. And the angel says, write this down. Blessed, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's why we labor in this life. That's why we work. That's why we fight sin. That's why we confess sin to one another. That's why we are trying to keep the, the, the wedding clothes looking good. And last week, when I was talking about the harlot that ultimately turns all nations sour, one of her greatest tricks that she uses is sexual immorality. And one of our, one of our young adults who uh, is on staff at the church, who's on a mission trip this week, she said, Thomas, I wrote in my notes, why does Satan use sex to, to, to tempt us so much? Because you said, you asked the question, why does he do that? And then you went on and you never answered it. And I said, I know, you have to come back next week. And she said, I'm in Paris next week. So I'll tell you now then. So I told her, this is the reason. This is part of the reason why sexual sin is such a big deal. Sexual sin is such a violation of intimacy that it's hard to comprehend when we condition ourselves for that violation to be normal. We can't possibly understand the marriage of Jesus and how the bride is supposed to keep herself pure and long for when we ourselves are so caught up in twists and perversions and so caught, so caught up that we don't even realize how twisted they are. 
And I, I challenge you to chew on that and think about it. Let it cut through the calluses that you have built up. But there is something deep that happens when we enter sexual sin that twists our understanding of this intimacy because sex between humans, this is how callous we are. What I'm about to say is going to sound like maybe twisted because we're so messed up sexually. Sex between humans is supposed to be an intimacy picture of what the Lord has for us and him. It's the closest thing two humans can ever do. And it's supposed to be this picture of the deep intimacy that the Lord has with us. Who, who knows us better than the Lord? Who sees us when it is dark as though it were light? No one but the Lord. And so then, once the church is united with Christ, there's this world cleansing that takes place. And it starts in verse 11. Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. You imagine John in this vision? This is incredible. John has seen a lot of things in these visions, but in this moment, he turns again because it's like he's in a room with a bunch of windows. And in this moment, he turns. And when he turns, he sees the heavens open. He hasn't seen this the whole time in any of the revelation. The heavens open up. And he, and, and he says, behold, there's a picture I haven't seen. And listen to the description as it unfolds. Because what we see here is the, the return of Christ and two things. We see a description of Jesus and we see how Jesus is going to return. So here's the description. Behold, the heavens open and a white horse and one sitting on it. There's going to be four names given to Jesus. And I don't know exactly why four names. One theory would be the number of four throughout Revelation is for all corners of the world. But there's four names that you're going to see him have in here. So the first one is this. He's sitting on the horse, and he is called faithful and true. What an incredible juxtaposition to Satan himself, who is called the deceiver, that old serpent. This guy is called faithful and true, the only one you can ultimately trust. And in righteousness, the faithful and true, he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He can see through all the stuff. On his head are many diadems. Diadem is another word for crown. This is the true king. This is no Satan with a bunch of crowns on his head. This is no beast with a bunch of crowns on his head. This is the real king. And every one of those little nations on the globe that you have or had, even if the nations have changed their names, every one of those belongs to this king. And so... He's got many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, that is a mystery, friends, and I don't know what the name is because nobody knows but him, but it's fascinating that he has this name. I don't know what, if it was written in a language. I don't know what it was, but he had a name written on him that John was like, that's a name. So he's faithful and true. There's a name that's a private name that he has that only he knows. It's written on him. And then he's clothed in a robe, but the robe is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
Now, this is fascinating. My whole life growing up, whenever I would hear about Revelation, I would read chapter 19, and I would read uh, verses 11 through 16, and I saw that Jesus on this horse who's going to Armageddon, the final battle, he's going to this battle. I saw that he had a robe dipped in blood. I always assumed that the robe was covered in blood from the people, the unrighteous left on earth that he's going to kill. But did you hear my language? Going to kill. No one has died yet. So whose blood is he wearing? His own blood. Why would he show up in his own blood all over his robe? Because he's already won. That's what he's showing everybody. When he shows up, his blood's on there. I already won, y'all. I've already beat death. I've already beat sin. 1 Corinthians 15, the victory is mine. You see the crowns. You see the blood. I am faithful and true. This is my kingdom. I have nothing left to prove. It makes the hairs on my arm stand up because this is the king of kings. And he is clothed in this robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So he is the faithful and true word of God in all purity. And folks, this, this, this sounds like it was like, okay, well, this is all figurative. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not really like that. I think this is about as plain as it gets. I think this is how the Lord comes back and this is what he's going to do to take over and to show that he is going to set the world right. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We just read earlier in the chapter about a group of people arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. This is the church. We have met the, the groom The bride has met the groom. We have had the marriage supper. We have eaten together. We have fellowshiped. We have been in his presence. And he's like, y'all, we got a little bit of work left to do. And we mount up. And we got these new robes on. And we know each other like perfectly. Like there's no marriage anymore. And we don't need marriage because we have him. And we're that connected with him. But each other we know perfectly. And it's wonderful. And we have all kept ourselves ready for him by his grace. And in this moment we come together and we are like, let's go King Jesus, let's go. And it looks like we're all going to go to war with him and we're going to end the wickedness and the unrighteousness and we're going to bring the final judgment on the world. But we're simply going to be spectators. We're following him on white horses. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword which is to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This, my friends, is tattooed Jesus. I mean, on his, on his robe and on his thigh. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like, this is like, I will follow him. Like, I'm glad I followed him in this life and I will follow him in the next because, like, everybody wants to be on the winning team. This is the winning team. This is better than Alabama. Like, this is, this is the winning team. Like, this is, 
like he's got a better coach than Saban. Like he's like, there's, there's no, like there's no defeat going on here. This is the guy to follow. And so what happens? The church is gathered. The church goes and we see the final battle. The final battle is Armageddon. It's listed in, it's mentioned in chapter 16. And he, 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 he battles and he battles from verses 17 through 21. But the way he battles is simply this. He simply says, that's enough. And with a word, he spoke and there were stars. And with a word, he spoke and universes were created. And with a word, plants began to grow. And with a word, animals roamed the earth. And with a word, he brings it all to a close. That's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But you got to ask, how does this king come? He's going to come like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, 36 through 44. He's going to come in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. He's going to come with the redeemed in Christ. Revelation 8 and 14. And he's going to come triumphant over sin and death and over existing and persisting evil. And if you want to read more about the last battle, and I'm going to talk a little bit of the last battle next week. You can read Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14 is a whole picture of Jesus descending back onto earth. And he stands on the Mount of Olives. And when he stands on the Mount of Olives, that is over. It is over. The whole world has gathered against him. All nations have become Babylon. There's one world power, one world leader, one whole world that's all together against him. He stands, he speaks, they melt, it's over. And all of that's in the text. And we stand there and we watch our groom go to work. And when you get to chapter 20, you have the most controversial chapter maybe in the New Testament outside of the resurrection accounts. Chapter 20 has made people scratch their heads. Chapter 20 has resulted in multiple views, three main views, because it talks about this thousand-year period. And there's this, there's this thousand years it talks about in verses 1 through 6 where uh, there's this, I'll, I'll just read you some of it, starting in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was, com was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they were tormented day and night forever. So this this first part, this thousand years, has resulted in three main views. One is called amillennialism. One is called premillennialism. And one is called post-millennialism. These three views are all orthodox. You could, be, you could have any of these three views and be on Christ, staff at Christ's covenant. One of the three, I won't tell you which one, you'd probably get made fun of. But that's just because people that study theology um, are kind of nerds. And so, like, no one else would care. But I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, here's, here's how I think right now in my reading of Revelation, I see chapter 20, but I could be totally wrong. So you just need to know, I could be totally wrong in how I see chapter 20. Um, I was talking with a, a fellow today through a third party texting back and forth, and he thought I was totally wrong. And so, and then I talked to another guy today who was like, uh, I think you're spot on. And then I talked to Heather and she just laughed at me and said, you'll probably think about it different later. And, uh, and so, because she studied Revelation a lot longer than I have. So I'll just tell you my view of chapter 20. I think chapter 20 more than likely is a recapitulation of all the stuff we've been reading. And I think in a sense, if it is that, in a sense, the thousand years would be more symbolic not a literal thousand years. But it's okay if you think it's a literal thousand years. I could be totally wrong. And during that thousand years, that, that symbolic thousand years, it would be from the time of Christ's ascension till now, Satan has been contained somewhat. But the day is coming when he will be unleashed. And he'll be able to pull people left and right towards him. So much so that the Christians will be hated more than you can imagine. The killings of Christians will go up and up and up. Those, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the love of many will grow cold. And the love of many will grow cold because people won't care so much about keeping their wedding garments looking clean and white as much as they will be saving their own life. And it's the ones who persist by the grace of God. Those are the ones that it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But then the day comes when Jesus gathers his church. Those still alive on earth and those that have been in heaven waiting, and the church is gathered, and the great marriage feast takes place. You know what Jesus said when he had communion, the only time he ever had communion, when he created the Lord's Supper? They got to the last cup of wine, 
It's in Matthew 26. They got to the last cup of wine, and he pushes the wine back. It's after he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After they did that, he pushed the cup back, and he said, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The church has been gathered Communion has been taken. We feast at the Lord's table. It really is the Lord's Supper. And then, and then it's the end. Look at verse 11. Then John sees a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, of which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead, and all who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And then they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 6 and 14 talk about two deaths. Everybody experiences the first death. That's the natural human death. And a bunch of people experience the second death. That is the eternal separation ongoing from God. It is the ultimate punishment. And next week, as we end the book, we're going to see, well, what, what do you do after that? Like, after all the bad's gone, what do you do? We're going to see a new heaven and a new earth and what God has designed. And it's going to go all the way back to, to Genesis. It's going to be this incredible arc all the way back to the garden. It's going to be wonderful. And it's the most powerful way to end this book. But in this moment, and I think that the reason the churches were given this letter, the reason we're given this letter is because we need to understand everybody experiences the first death, but not everybody has has to experience the second death. And he's coming back, and he's not coming back just to judge. Judging is the second reason he's coming back. The second reason is that great white throne of judgment. The main reason he's coming back is because he longs to be with his bride. I remember Heather and I had to be engaged for 11 months. It was 11 months too long. Like the first month, you're like, that's cool. The second month, you're like, this is great. The third month, you're like, so if purgatory was a thing, this would be it. Uh, the fifth month, you're like, hell, this is, this is like more like hell. Uh, and we, we had some different circumstances. It was supposed to be like eight months, but it ended up being 11. And, uh, and so it, it was killing me. I just wanted to be with my bride. And if another woman had come to me, and said, hey, she'll never find out. Let's, let's go over here. I think I would have said, you're crazy. Have you met Heather? Why would I do that? And that is exactly 
what we ought to be doing if we are the bride when those temptations come our way. You don't want a big stain of sin to cover part of the wedding clothes. We want to be the bride that looks right for the groom. And over and over again in these two chapters, we've seen blessed are the ones who kept themselves pure. That's part of the sign that you're part of the church is this longing to be pure for the groom who's coming. And so regardless of your view on the rapture or my view on the millennium or any of those things, this stuff is like 100%. The bride is going to be taken up with the groom. The groom is coming for the bride and the groom is looking. He's looking to see if the bride's going to keep herself pure. Read Matthew chapter 25, the whole chapter, the Olivet Discourse. This, that whole chapter is about those who kept themselves for him and those who didn't. Jesus spent a whole chapter on it, told three parables back to back to back. That's how important this is. And I think as we go into worship tonight, I think we have to ask ourselves, Am I adorning myself for him or do I have another lover? Because my actions tell the tale. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about the white throne of judgment. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Again, he's talking about Revelation 21, starting in verse 11. He's talking about the great white throne of judgment. On that day, that's the day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My heart burdens for all of us. Because it's not that we don't all stumble and sin in many ways. We do. But we don't all feel the conviction and seek repentance and forgiveness. And the reason we don't is because we've either calloused ourselves, we've quenched the Holy Spirit so many times, it makes us wonder, am I even a Christian? And the reason others don't is because they're not. And they're going to stand before Jesus one day and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. And so tonight, let's re-up. Let's re-up and ask the Lord for the grace to obey him, the grace to follow him. Not because that's what's going to get me into heaven. It's his blood, that blood-covered robe. That he's, his blood gets us into heaven. But when we obey out of his grace and conviction, it's a sign we're part of the church. And folks, the world needs to see the church real bad. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you.
I thank you that you have revealed yourself and your son in this book. Jesus, I thank you that you are going to return. And you are returning to gather your bride. Lord, may we long to be gathered to you. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who else would we follow than you? But Lord, we stumble in many ways. Give us a hunger, give us a desire deep from your spirit, Lord, to adorn ourselves in a longing to see the groom. Lord, move in our hearts. Take away the calluses. Clear the Clear our eyes, Lord. Clear our hearts, Lord. Help us to just want to hunger and know you, Lord. Remove the hard soil. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen.